Pass Around the Smile is like your go-to friend, the one that lifts you up and backs you to the end. She's there to guide and inspire, challenge and teach, and remind you that your best self isn't out of reach. Self-development, manifestation, self-love and more, it's time to trust the process more than ever before. Welcome to Pass Around the Smile, the podcast. I'm your host, Cleo Massey, and I am so glad you're here. Let the magic begin. I'm so excited to introduce you to the incredible Sarah Davidson, who is a true inspiration to me. You may know her as Spoonful of Sarah or the woman behind Seize the Yay, where through her podcast and book, she effortlessly guides and inspires with uplifting, honest and thought-provoking content. Sarah is witty, intelligent and from my eyes, one of the most inspiring businesswomen in Australia, who went from the corporate world as a lawyer to entrepreneur when she founded Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk bar. Now, I wouldn't normally mention Instagrams in an intro. However, in a world where we are constantly scrolling, I encourage you to scroll accounts that make you feel good. Sarah's Instagram page, Seize the Yay, is just that. Her posts are real, positive, inspiring, and there's heaps of dog content, which is obviously really important. She's a speaker, a best-selling author, a podcasting queen, a presenter on Channel 7. She is Sarah Davidson, and every day she is seizing her yay hi sarah welcome to the pass around the smile podcast you are my first guest and i am just absolutely over the moon to have you it is such a big honor i'm so excited for you so excited for you to enter podcast land and really really feel very special uh, that you chose me to start off the show so thank you Oh, you are amazing. Now, if it's okay with you, I'm really wanting to kind of base this podcast around your book, Seize the Yay, because I've just finished it for a second time and I'm just so excited to elaborate on so many of the things you so beautifully write about. So how how do you feel about that? Does that sit okay? You are just far too kind. I cannot believe that you've read it twice. I'm not even (laughs) sure my family have read it combined that many times. So that would be um, the greatest pleasure. I think, as you know, it came out during stage four lockdown. And because I kind of didn't see it in the wild in the normal way that you normally would when you first publish a book, I don't still believe that it's real. Like, so when people have actually read it, it's such a novelty. It still feels so special and strange and weird and surreal. So I would love to talk about it. (laughs) Oh, I'm so happy. And it is real and it's incredible. Um, So yeah, I'm so excited to get into that. But before we get into your book, I want to bring up a quote and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you wrote this quote and it's the (laughs) title of one of your podcasts and it's success doesn't halve when you share it, it doubles. I do not believe that I found anywhere else that that's been quoted. I think that I invented it. But I'm pretty I'm, sure you did. I'm open to the internet correcting me because usually it will correct you when you claim that something is yours. I think I invented it in my brain <laughs> and it remains one of my most guiding principles that helps me decide when to collaborate, how to collaborate, how to make decisions and I think we often default to a place of competitiveness and especially as women, we fought so hard for equality and equity and Mm -hmm. sometimes think there's a limited amount of places for us all and can get very, 
not combative, but just competitive, just by nature. And I think it doesn't really get you very far if we all feel like we're one against each other rather than combining and sharing. And then we all lift each other up and everyone ends up getting further. Oh, I I could not agree more. And it's one thing to say what you just said, but the reason I wanted to bring up this quote is because you embody it. Like it really does encompass you as a person. And I can say this with confidence. So for my listeners, I reached out to Sarah about a month ago, not only to ask her to come on my podcast as my first guest, and my podcast wasn't even a thing yet, but also to kind of get Sarah's blessing somewhat, because if you've listened to Sarah's podcast, Seize the Yay, you'll know that she starts her podcast with a catchy, cute, witty little poem. (laughs) And I am just obsessed with it and have been for years. And I always thought if I am ever brave enough to start my own podcast, I would love to start it with a poem, but I didn't want to just do it out of respect to you. I wanted to get your blessing as I guess a fellow Australian podcaster now. And Sarah, your reply was just so encouraging and supportive and you really were happy to share your success with me. (laughs) I was so taken aback that you were so lovely and checked and (laughs) as if like I own jingles at the start of podcasts. It was so (laughs) lovely of you. But even just how how carefully you wanted to make sure that no one misinterpreted that that's what you were doing was so lovely. So I was just like at every stage, I think there's nothing more flattering and lovely than when someone approaches you to come on their show, but then they're so attentive to all the things that you actually do or have done. Like one of the things that Cleo mentioned was that as her first guest, I am the Rachel Finch to me. I'm going to mess this up. I am to her how Rachel Finch was to me. And the way that she even knows what Rachel Finch was to me at the start of CZA, which is now four years ago, more than four years ago, the research you must have done or the attention you must have paid to my journey uh, to know that is just very, very special. So you are already doing wonderful things with your podcast and passing around the smiles because that definitely made me smile. So, Oh, gosh, that means so much from you. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you so much. Uh, Well, for my listeners, I guess, who maybe don't know you, do you want to give us a little introduction into who you are? I mean, especially around that kind of big, scary leap from the world of being a lawyer into the unknowns of starting a business? Yeah, for sure. As you well know, I'm not very good at telling a short story, so please interrupt me if I get too long-winded. No, we have time. (laughs) (laughs) So I started off, as you mentioned, on a very conventional career path as a corporate lawyer and ended up having a kind of big unexpected sliding doors moment that changed my pathway dramatically and um, for now anyway, quite permanently in a wonderful, wonderful way. But uh, I guess the best way to start the story is to go all the way back to the beginning. So I was born in South Korea originally and adopted into an orphanage in South Korea and adopted uh, by an incredible Australian family when I was six months old uh, and then have since grown up in Australia. And I think that very early beginning uh, has meant a lifelong, it's meant two things. Firstly, it's meant a lifelong belief in sliding doors moments and the magic of the fact that there could be something around the corner that you have no idea about that will change your life that maybe you didn't even deserve. I was like a blob at the time, so I didn't deserve to be given another life or or a better chance. But um, yeah, 
but for one small thing or one small action by someone else or by not necessarily a person, just things that happen in life, things could be very different. So I've always been fascinated by how to bring on sliding doors moments. And then the other thing that it's uh, really left me with is this really acute sense of gratitude for growing up in what I think is the luckiest country in the world and all the amazing opportunities that we have here. So that's made me a very eager beaver. I've always loved to do everything and anything. I'm not very good at going slowly. I kind of describe <laughs> myself as equal parts nerd burger and arty farty. So I've always loved the academic side of school. I cried on day one of prep when I didn't get homework, but I also was like putting on concerts for my entire street and dressing up and writing songs and being really arty farty as well. And I now think, looking back, that being multi-interested and multi-passionate makes for a really amazing life and so much broad experience along the way, but it also makes it really hard to make decisions because you're often not that person who grows up and thinks, I know what I want to be, this is the logical steps to get there. It means you Mm. want to be lots of different things and that can be kind of overwhelming because really all we want to find is our purpose in life and where we're meant to be. And it's really hard when you like lots of different things. So there's not one clear passion. So Mm. I went through all of school, all of uni in that kind of headspace of I still don't really know what I want to do. So I'll just do a bit of everything and kind of keep more doors open rather than close them. And my mum always said, if you don't know what you, you want to do, you might as well do something because the time is going to pass anyway. So why don't you do things that open your mind or open your world and opportunities rather than things that will close them. Um, and that, that served me pretty well. I, now that I've left law, I often get asked like, do you regret choosing law? And then do you regret choosing to leave it? And in both situations, Mm -hmm. I actually don't think I chose. I think I ended up there quite by accident. And I think that's kind of now why I'm so fascinated in how people end up where they are, because I think I got to the end of school. I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I happened to get really good marks. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to waste a mark. What's the maximum thing that I could do? And I I hate blood, so I couldn't do medicine. (laughs) And the only, like in my brain at the time, the only logical other choice for me was law. So it was like by accident that I got on this, you know, kind of conveyor belt of like, what's the next next logical thing that I should do? And I chose that because it was sensible and because it was prestigious and because I got in and because I I should, if I could get in, I should go, you know, so much was dictated Mm. should. Which doesn't mean that I had a bad time. I loved studying law. I did law arts. I did lots of languages. I got to travel, but ended up at the end of uni still not really knowing what that meant or what I should do. So again, I was like, well, everyone else who's finished law is applying for law firms. So I should probably do that too. Because like, what else am I going to do? Again, worked really hard not knowing what for, but ended up thinking, well, I might as well try and get into a good law firm to start my career and then figure it out as I go along. I loved it. I actually really was gratified by how much learning opportunity there was. I was surrounded by the smartest people I've ever met. I got to travel. I worked in Hong Kong for a year. I got to pretend like my life looked like suits and wear like fancy cute dresses and like pretend I was Meghan Markle and the suits dream, even though very, very small amounts would actually look like that. And I was one of those people who it ticked a lot of boxes. It was financially stable. There was a really clear ladder to climb. That's kind of satisfying when you're an A-type personality. Um, And I still had so much learning to do. So I was never one of those people who left because I hated it. I actually didn't find the long hours when the project was really exciting. And now I think I don't worry about people who are actively unhappy because if you're really unhappy, it'll get so bad that you'll make a decision to change it. If you're Mm. just fine, 
or you're good even, often you don't think of anything else because you're like, I'm so, especially if you're grateful, you're like, I'm so grateful. Why would I look for anything else? Because I've already got something good and we feel ungrateful to want something else. But you can Mm -hmm. be grateful and want something else at the same time. Oh, absolutely. I feel that. That is, yeah, well said. Which is difficult because then you don't want to be like an ungrateful millennial who gets bored too easily and wants more, more, more all the time. But you also don't want to settle in something and end up there for 50 years and then think, oh, my God, I've wasted so much time and I could have been doing something that was better. So I never would have left. I would have been on that productivity conveyor belt, I think, and finding ways to enjoy and learn. But the universe had wonderful other plans as it turned out. And uh, I went, I was like, again, I'm so sorry. This is not a short story. Um, no, but it's good. <laughs> so many words of wisdom in between. I love it. My now husband uh, is the opposite of me. He's never had a job. He likes to say he's always been an entrepreneur and his company uh, is a creative agency and he'd supported an incredible campaign um, with the youth, YGAP, the Youth Generation Against Poverty. And we went on a sponsor's trip to Rwanda in my first year of law and spent a month in a small rural town um, in the Mahunga district. And it was as transformative as you can imagine, but not in the ways that I expected. So Mm -hmm. I thought being born in an orphanage in particular, that I would feel overwhelmingly grateful for everything we have in Australia, which of course is one intellectual response that I had. But the bigger surprise was I saw people and communities that had no markers of success in the way I understood success. So, you know, financial Uh, growth, promotions, titles, status, all those things that I'd come to value or come to use as metrics for my life, they didn't have those things. And yet they were maybe happier or at least happier in a less burdened way than everyone back home. And that was so confusing because I was like, wait, Mm. I thought success is happiness. Like what is going on here? So that was the first time I separated success from happiness. They're related, but they're not the same thing. And then the second thing I brought home was a gut parasite, which was really fun when I lost five kilos, but when I lost another 10 and then couldn't get up and then collapsed at work and ended up with adrenal fatigue, it it ended up not being a very fun time. But in the process of recovering, I was banned from coffee. I got sent to Hong Kong with the law firm after I went back to work, discovered matcha green tea powder realized it's an amazing substitute. It's still caffeinated, but a lot gentler on the body. Nick and I couldn't find it when we came home to Australia. We bought some. It was two million serves too many for two of us to drink (laughs) or to use by date. So we thought as a hobby, we'll sell some and accidentally started a business, which then started off the entire seven years that's happened since then. The universe really does work in mysterious ways, doesn't it? Wild, wild. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So before we move on to the next seven years, I guess, I want to chat a little bit more about what you were saying, success versus happiness. Talk a little bit more about that and yeah, how you kind of see it. I think I spend, I spent a lot of my earlier years really conflating the two and thinking like, if I just get these things that are successful, if I get really good marks, then I get into a really good job or into a good uni course and then into a good job, that that would make me happy or that Mm. is what happiness looked like. It was, and of course, I mean, having a, a stable income, having great opportunities to learn, great mentors, like that is, that helps with happiness But the mistake that I think I made and a lot of people make is you think that's all you need to do for happiness. Like that will fill all of your cups and you'll be great and have a great life. 
But, I mean, all you need to do is look at Hollywood where they have more money than they can ever use in a lifetime and mm. often are tormented and, you know, there's so many drugs. That, like, you know, it's just it's a clear example that that's not the only part of the equation. Yeah, yeah. So Africa was really the first time of me thinking maybe they are related but maybe I need to work on, like, being fulfilled in what I do. Maybe happiness is money helps happiness but it's not the only part of your identity that can make you happy maybe there's like legacy maybe there are hobbies maybe there's a reason why people have hobbies that aren't money earning that aren't financially measured like I just had never really allowed myself to ask is this the thing that really lights me up am I like so excited about it that and Mm. again I think one of the things that's changed a lot in the last couple of years for me is I don't mean you have to be happy in your job all the time that's Mm. a mistake I think a lot of us make too far in the other direction that we think oh if I'm not happy all the time then I shouldn't be in this job that's not the case work is called work for a reason and generations before us would laugh at us us millennials all being like I quit my job because I wasn't stimulated like it just was a little bit boring (laughs) it's a job you've got bills like there's a part of work that is not always going to be 100% happy and joyful and the best thing that you want to be doing all the time but that doesn't mean that you can have you're meant to have no joy in it or no stimulation or no fulfillment or that you can't at least choose among, um, you know, many different pathways, you can choose the one that suits you the best. Like maybe Mm. you're not suited to a corporate job or maybe you are really suited to a corporate job. So maybe business isn't the right thing for you. Like I just think that my relationship between success and happiness has been once upon a time, success and financial driven metrics drove all my decisions and happiness yeah. was like a side effect that I'd kind of measure every now and then and be like, yeah, but I wouldn't really even think about it. I just thought I was happy because I got the promotion, like tick. But you were happy now, enough. Now I'm like, actually, if you make more decisions based on what suits your particular skills, your particular interests, your particular passions, your pathway isn't meant to look like anyone else's, whether it's considered successful or not. We're all meant mm. to do different things and there are pathways that suit you better and pathways that don't. And if you veer a little bit more towards what lights you up and what you're really good at, you'll usually be better at it because you're more excited about it. But also the success kind of comes naturally when you're choosing things that you're really excited about and that you're good at. And then you're also happy. Like you're also having a really good life. You don't look back in 50 years and have a midlife crisis because you think, yeah, I've got all all this money but I never had experiences or I spent every day not wanting to go, go to work and hating it. Like it doesn't have to be like that. No, yeah. yeah. And then it's a win-win really when you look at it that way. I think I really liked what you said as well, um, how you were kind of looking at external things to somewhat complete you and I think we're all a bit guilty of that of putting conditions on our happiness like I will be happy when I reach this amount of kilograms I will be confident when I have this much in my bank account but happiness isn't external it's internal and I think I can relate to you as well with being happy enough being happy enough like I thought being happy enough was enough but it's not And yeah, like we're not saying to people, you have to be 1 million percent every day happy and fulfilled. That's not attainable. But happy enough is not enough. Like I was happy enough for so many years in the acting industry because I thought that's what I was meant to do. And I was continually just getting smacked in the face and it was awful. But I was thinking, no, this is what I need to do to get where I need to be. And 
that wasn't the case at all. Yeah, it's really interesting though because I, I I'm, like I won't put words in your mouth, but I also think that happiness is I, I have always looked at it until recently as like this destination that I'm supposed to arrive at, and then I did I did that I left corporate I did the thing I took the leap of faith and I jumped towards happiness, but then I thought I was at the destination, so I was like oh pat myself on the back. I've left the comfort zone. I'm never going to have to leave the comfort zone again because I'm at the destination of happiness. You've arrived. I've arrived. But then what happens is you settle and you become comfortable in that new level and you're like, wait, what's wrong with me? I'm at happiness and I still want more? Like what's wrong with me? I'm at happiness. I've reached the peak. Destination. (laughs) But like that's the point. If we all had this one static point of happiness and then we arrived at it and we arrived at it early in our life, like what the fuck are you going to do for the rest of your life? The exactly. point of it is the journey. And the point of it is that I used to see happiness as like this static image, like this picture, you arrive there, you frame it at that point in time, it stays on your wall forever and you never have to do anything again. That's what I thought yeah. I was writing on. I was like, I'm mm-hmm. an entrepreneur, like I'm amazing. But then I realized <laughs> it's not, it's a jigsaw puzzle. It's always evolving. You are adding pieces that you were missing and you're getting rid of pieces that you don't need anymore. And every new chapter and experience, you're like adjusting it constantly because what you want and what's happiness at 30 is not the same at 40 or 50. And what you wanted at 20 is definitely not the same as what you want at 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70. And so I also think that that often makes us think that if you did an acting career and then you left, that that was a waste of time. But I don't think so at all. It was just a different jigsaw puzzle. It was just a, a chapter for that time without which you couldn't be where you are now. So nothing oh, is really all Absolutely. It's, and it is empowering to look at it that way because there 100% were times where I was like, this was all a waste. But I would not have started Pass Around the Smile if it wasn't for the negativity I faced in the film and television industry. So thank you. <laughs> and it makes you who you are. Like every, yeah. nothing is a waste if you learn something from it. And even yeah. if what you learn is what you don't want to do, that's a lot more information than some people have. Some people don't know what they do or don't want to do. So really, if you're getting more of your jigsaw puzzle figured out, you don't need to see anything as a waste, which I think actually it's a choice of how you see what the stages of your life mean, but I prefer not to have kind of regrets or, or not to think that I've learned from every chapter and to believe that every stepping stone led me to where I am. And that's, it helps you a lot. I think be happy with where you are and understand that if you're not yet where you want to be, that's okay. You're just on the staircase. You're getting there. Like each thing is getting you closer. Oh, it's, I love listening to you speak. (laughs) You're amazing. It would take, start to take us through the next seven years now. Okay, so we uh, started the business by accident, very much as a hobby on the side. And this is a bit that gets me so excited because I, I think you really believe when you're on the outside, like just before we started the business, looking at other businesses from from the outside, it's so easy to glamorize everything, to like believe that, you know, no one else could, how could anyone start a business? Like they're so scary and overwhelming and big and glossy and amazing. But really we were like packing in our undies in a friend's (laughs) commercial kitchen with shower caps on because we were just so DIY. We bought everything off eBay or Alibaba. Like we Googled everything. It is so DIY. It is so much easier. Like, honestly, I now say to everyone, the doing of the hard stuff, whether it's to start a business, whether it's to apply for a promotion, whatever that scary next thing is for you, 
it's never the doing that topples anybody. The actual doing of the task, someone could just make you a list and you could just do the, the stuff. You could Google how to start a business, how to register an ABN, how to buy stock, what to put the stock in. Like you can do all that. It's the brain yeah. game of like, what if I fail? What if I look silly? What if it doesn't work? Oh my God, it's all the mental chatter. But looking back at how we actually started, I'm still flabbergasted that that's, that's all we had to do was just start packing the stuff. We already bought the stuff. We were stuck with it. And maybe because we weren't taking it seriously, we didn't have as much self-doubt because we were like, eh, no one even knows it's us. Like this is kind of fun. It kind of helped. That naivety kind of helped us get started. Yeah. So, you were like surrendering without even trying. Yeah. It, it kind of was like a the perfect <laughs> recipe because we had no, really no, no risk. Like we'd already bought the product. We had to get rid of it somehow. Yeah. Anything was a bonus. And now I kind of try and replicate that approach. If I can just sell one bag or if I could just do one episode or if I could just do one, you know, get one customer, that's all you ever need to deal with because before you get 100, you need one. Before you yes. get 10, you need one. So just get the gear to like to do one and then you can figure the rest out as you go. So it was very DIY at the start, total breaking bad but green. And that lasted a really long time, the whole DIY setup. Um, I was working full time and going home and doing like in my lunch breaks and then we'd pack until midnight and it was crazy. But we sold out in a week because it turned out, I often say someone out there is looking for exactly what you have and you just have to trust that there is someone out there looking. Yes. There were like thousands of people looking and people always tell their story with too much attributed to luck, but we were genuinely very lucky that matcha was known the Kardashians were drinking it, Victoria's Secret Angels were drinking it, but no one had made it a brand. There was no like, it was like sugar. It was really generic and no one had made it easily buyable online. Um, so we just stepped into this beautiful gap that lasted for maybe 18 months. You also had the brain power though to go, I can see a gap in the market here. Like, yes, okay, luck, of course, but like you guys had the ability to go, there is a gap in the market here. We can do this. Like that. <laughs> That is huge. Like that is actually a hard step. Yeah. In hindsight, I'm like, wow, I don't know if I could do that again. But at the time it was just kind of like, I, I want this stuff. I'm selfish. I want the matcha. So I need it to get to it. <laughs> yeah. But it turned out Urban Outfitters in the States off the back of social media, which is why I think the digital age is so exciting because it's democratized good ideas and influence and it was free and amazing. They wanted a custom matcha for their lifestyle section and they emailed us and, and ordered more bags wow. than we sold in the last six months. And that was kind of the fork in the road of I can't pack this order by the date that they need it and do my my day job. So I'm really going to have to choose because it got to the point where I wasn't doing either of them properly. Um, but I waited right. six months until taking the jump and then took the leap. Uh, I, I would say another 12 months passed without any competitors in the market and we were just scrambling to keep up like trying to find a facility trying to hire we opened the cafe because we were like oh my god we should ride this wave but we're all online like maybe we should kind of open a a physical venue and then that started the matcha milk bar the vegan cafe and that opened a whole new world up to us and then the Hemsworths came in and that was kind of how that all happened and and we were just in this blur for maybe four four years of just we started this business. We didn't expect it to go well. It's growing so fast that every decision was just made based on need and necessity. And then it got really hard. Then it got like suddenly the T2s, the twinings, they were bringing out Matra. They'd figured mm. out what we were on to and 
and Blackmores and these huge players started bringing out matcha products and we thought it was all over. But then we kind of had to pivot into, okay, well, we're not teaching everyone what matcha is anymore. We're teaching them why ours is better or why ours is different and why you want to buy from a small family-owned business. The people who are shopping, this is the other thing is, there's a place for everyone in the market. It's just you finding your right customers. And people who are buying from a multinational are not our customers. They were never our customers. People who buy from big global supermarkets are not going to be the same people who want a boutique product that is hand-packed, you know. So we kind of refound our groove, mm. kept going for another few years. And, and then I thought, maybe I am the millennial that's getting bored. Like, why is this getting really hard? But I realized it was because the bigger the business got, the more corporate it became and the closer I got back to where I had originally begun. And that was the jigsaw puzzle pieces starting to to churn again and make me think I want to be closer to the people. I want to be closer to the conversations about doubt, about comparison, about imposter syndrome, about having my period. And I can't say on Matcha Maiden, you didn't get your matcha because I'm in the fetal position. Like that's not the right thing. So I started Seize the Yay and I started talking on my personal page about the behind the scenes stuff. And very quickly that took over as what I was really passionate about and lit up about was talking to people about the shitty bits, not the good bits. I didn't want to talk about the good bits anymore. I wanted to talk about how do we get through the hard bits? How do we get through stuff? the overwhelming bits? Because people don't need necessarily help with scaling at five years. They need help at minus five days where they haven't even started yet. Um, and that very quickly took on a life of its own. And then I realized again, I came to this new fork or I can't do both. I'm not doing both very well. We are not the best guardians for this business anymore because it's outgrown our skill set. It was like reaching that mass market, big corporate level. And that was no, no longer really where I wanted to be. And so it was like another big jump of let's try and sell this business to owners who have a better better ability and better experience mm. to guide this, but also so that I can free up my time to put all my time into CCA, to write a book, to source better guests, to turn these conversations into what I do next. And so that yeah. was two years ago now, I would say. At the time of writing the book, we were also selling Matcha Maiden. Wow. And I think we sold just before I published it and then I quickly had to change one of the paragraphs at the start to say with Exit. I can't remember how it all went down, but I yeah, remember. That's, that's how it went down. <laughs> okay, okay, let me check with my official book checker. Thank you, Cleo. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I love your story and I love what it reminds me is that it's okay to pivot. It's okay to change and just because something that is maybe presenting as a block doesn't mean that it's a block. Like see it as redirection. You change your outlook so many times. Like when the Twinings and the Blackmores popped up, you could have got so stuck in comparison. Mm. But instead you chose to, I guess, change your outlook and redirect. I definitely did wallow in that for a really long time. Like I was Mm. ready, I would say, I can't, I would say maybe 2018 when suddenly there was match everywhere and it was so much cheaper than we were able to do it because there were economies of scale and, yeah. you know, that people were finding different places to buy it. There was Chinese matcha that came out, which is not the authentic Japanese matcha product that we wanted to sell, but it's much, much cheaper. And then mm. there was a whole education piece. And I just was like, I can't do this. Like, this is not, I don't know how to do this. 
I literally came, I would say maybe 10 times within a day of just closing down because that that mental conversation of how can I compete with, how can you compete, compete with Blackmores? How can this Melbourne couple in their garage compete? And then you realize coming back to the quote you started with, like, we're not competing. Like we're not actually, the the fact that they are stocking it means the market is growing, which Mm. is a good sign, but you just target towards the people who do want what you've got. Honestly, the people who shop in boutique health food groceries or pharmacies are not the same people who are going to get their superfoods at the supermarket. They're just not Mm. people. And Australia is a much smaller market than the States, obviously, but it's still a lot of people. There's still enough room for all of us. Yes, there is. There is an infinite abundance of everything available to everyone. It, let's um let's talk about comparison then while we're kind of on the on the topic. Your when I got to your chapter in the book of comparison, I was like, great, I'm definitely gonna be so inspired by this. But I must admit, I thought I knew everything there was about comparison. But your outlook on it was so new to me and refreshing. And I mean personally being in the acting industry, I have faced comparison like no other, you know, walking into auditions every week with 15 girls that look exactly the same as me, Mm. never hearing after auditions or getting a role and then getting it taken away from me and then watching what that girl has and what I don't. So I've faced it a lot, but what does comparison mean to you and how do you kind of combat it in a healthy way? I think it's just one of the hardest areas to manage like self-doubt is often based on your skills more than well, I, I don't know how you guys do it in your industry honestly it is so brutal for everything to be judged not necessarily on your skills and purely what you look like but I think the self-doubt mm-hmm. conversation is often driven around your skills and your abilities but comparison is not it's like so irrational I mean self-doubt is, is irrational too but I feel like comparison is just we get silly like we literally spiral, we get so silly, we start comparing the stupidest things that are so not irrelevant, so not relevant. Um, we compare people who aren't even in the same market as us. Like it's yeah. just, it's such, a, it's like an itch that you, you're not supposed to scratch, but we scratch the scab right off and then just let it bleed everywhere. And then are like, oh my God, like why do I feel <laughs> so shit? And it's like, because you've been comparing yourself all day. It's yeah, such a human reaction. It is so normal. In some ways, it's healthy because it keeps you on your toes. It's really good to know what your competitors are doing so you understand understand the landscape. So there are parts of comparison in terms of when it's used for inspiration or when it's used for keeping you motivated to, to keep on your toes and keep bettering yourself. That's a healthy level of comparison. Yeah. And you will always, always compare yourself up and compare yourself down. Like that's just, it's a natural way of measuring kind of where we are and situating ourselves in society. But I think the really dangerous part is when you are only comparing yourself upwards to people who are at different levels in different circumstances and you let yourself feel like crap. It, it literally that quote about comparison being the thief of joy is the the main way I summarize comparison. It most of the time makes you feel crap about yourself. It most of the yeah. time robs you of celebrating and appreciating how far you have actually come. We very rarely flip it the other way around and compare downwards. Not that that's nice to do either, but yeah, we will yeah. only allow ourselves. We'll never go, look how well I'm doing compared to that person. We'll only go, look how shit I'm doing compared to the, the person above us. And I think that's exactly so counterproductive, not only because it robs you of joy, 
but also because half the time, another quote that I love is if we all put our shit on the table, suddenly you'd want to take yours back. You'd look mm. at everyone else's and you'd be like, whoa, if that success comes with that stuff, like I prefer my situation because you you never know what you're comparing to. It's fruitless because you literally are comparing to what you see on the internet, what they choose to let you see, which is the highlights only. You never know what's going on behind the scenes, but also it's irrelevant because what does it achieve? Looking at someone else who's more successful doesn't make you more successful. It doesn't get you any closer. It literally is an exercise that only makes you feel bad. And so I I feel like you know when you're starting to spiral, you can feel it and we just don't get strict enough with ourselves to stop it. And the the main way that I have learned to cope with it is to, like you remember from the chapter, the whole chapter is focused on blinkering yourself. Like horses at a horse race, they have blinkers on so they can only run their own race. If they happen to be faster than the horse next to them, amazing. But they can't be distracted by looking to the sides because then they're not running their own race. So I have to, we can't physically put blinkers on, but I will like put on metaphorical blinkers and that's, if I'm feeling really triggered, I just won't, like sometimes you have a a day where things aren't going well in the business and you know that's not a good day to go doing research on your competitors. Those are the days when it's like metaphorical blinkers, don't look, mute certain pages. Like there are Mm. whole periods of your life where you know certain things are going to make you feel a certain way and yet we don't put up barriers to avoid that. And so I found even when I was getting married, When I got so close to the day that I was not going to change my dress, I had already booked everything. Why would I keep looking at Vogue brides? Like why? Because all I want to do is want to change my dress. So I just muted every bridal page. Like that's the only way is to create blinkers that stop the triggers because you're probably not going to be able to stop the comparison. That's just a natural thing. But stop the trigger that starts the comparison And if you do feel yourself starting to spiral, like nip it in the bud and just return to like, I am living my own life. I am running my own race. Whatever else anyone is doing is really irrelevant. And if I spent all this energy on actually improving what I'm doing, that would be a much more productive exercise. (laughs) Like not only are you, every time you scroll on your competitor's page, you're literally giving them minutes. You're pushing them up on the discovery yes, you are good way to think them. of it like scroll your own page <laughs> <laughs> you put your energy into you like we do we waste so much energy worrying about what other people are doing what mm. about what you're doing what about what you want I just I love how you talk about it it's so refreshing because you talk about it in a way that's like you don't have to completely resist it. You don't have to fear it. And you talk about imposter syndrome in the book in a similar way where you don't, like I personally, until reading your book, always resisted imposter syndrome and tried to put it away. But speak to us a little bit about this chapter. And maybe also (laughs) I was practicing, (laughs) I was practicing with my husband, Luke, and he was like, you've you should probably say what imposter syndrome is because like a lot of people don't actually know what it is. I didn't until about a year ago, even though I had felt the effects of imposter syndrome for my whole life. So give us your take on it. Yeah, it's it's um, one of those things that I think most people have experienced in some form or another. And I know we over-label everything, but I also think that sometimes giving a label to something helps you cope with it because then you're able to identify when you're doing it, 
what it's resulting in for you and how to stop it. Until you know that you're doing it, you, you can't help yourself because, you know, you haven't actually identified what you're doing. So I, mm. I think of imposter syndrome as literally when you feel like you're an imposter, when you feel yeah. like you don't belong and it's usually a worth or a value question. It's like, I don't deserve this position. I am not good enough to be here. It's when it's it's a fancier and more specific way of describing self-doubt. I don't belong here. I don't believe that I deserve this position or this success. Um, I think it's very, it's everyone experiences it, but I think it's particularly widespread in women because we we doubt ourselves. We have this natural doubt and fear and and then we have this extra layer of likability like I want to be successful and assertive but what if no one likes me and like we just have so much chatter in our brains that I think you do talk yourself often out of situations because you don't think you deserve them you're too much of an imposter that you don't belong and And didn't you put like a sorry to interrupt but you put a research in your book that was Tell that. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. This is my favourite statistic in the history of ever. Um, and again, <laughs> I think it's because once you kind of can measure something and identify what it is and how it manifests, it's so much more powerful for you to resist it. So mm. I found a really helpful statistic because when I was a lawyer, I had automatically learnt how to pretend that I was more confident than I was feeling without really realising it. But I still found certain conversations way too hard and I was losing out because I wouldn't ask for a pay rise or I wouldn't ask for an opportunity mm. because I was just like, ugh. And I realised it wasn't until like someone gave me a stat. I was like, oh, that's how, how impactful it is. So Hewlett-Packard did a study on women and men and a mass generalisation, but these are the statistics. Yeah. Um, there are, of course, outliers, but on women and men applying for promotions in the workplace. And uh, men will apply when they have something like 60% of the criteria because absolutely logically they know they can learn the other 40% on the go. And if they already knew 100%, then they would already be in that job. Like you're not meant to start a whole new role with 100% of the criteria because otherwise Mm. where is the learning? Where is the growth opportunity? There's a reason Mm. why it's above where you are now so that you can grow into it. Women will wait until they have at least 100% of the criteria because we don't think that we're worth applying or we might not get it or even if we got it like we don't deserve it it's a fluke until we're a hundred percent qualified if not more which leaves no room for growth and trusting in your ability Mm. to learn on the go but it also means that even if there was no institutional inequality which we know is not the case but even in a totally equal workplace women would lose out on timing because men have applied earlier So even if there was an equal opportunity there, it's like we've already disadvantaged ourselves because we waited too long. So all the roles are taken. And I think it it reminds me that gender aside, but particularly as a woman being aware that that's my default, that every time you let imposter syndrome control your decisions that much, you're losing out based Mm. on everyone else who's figured out how to get through it. And not that they don't feel it, of course, men also feel self-doubt sometimes. Of course, they also think, oh, shit, this is really hard. What if I, I'm not qualified? What if it doesn't go well? Mm. But if they learn to then just do it anyway, they don't lose the opportunity to prove to themselves that they can, which I think everyone has proven in their life that as you do more stuff, that's hard and that you once thought was scary, you realize you can do it. And then you're like, oh, okay, I've just grown. Like that's part of being a human. Mm. You can do more as you, as you advance. So 
what I've learned, and that's similar to what you said, is that I used to really think any imposter syndrome was then like the worst because, oh, obviously I'm like not confident enough and I haven't done the work enough and I'm still failing on that front because I still feel nervous before I speak or whatever. Mm. Um, And now I realised actually in all of these areas, self-doubt, imposter syndrome, comparison, a small amount of them is healthy. A small amount of those feelings keeps you on your toes if I didn't feel any of those feelings, I'd be too confident and would think I'm complacent and I'm obviously comfortable, which means I'm not learning. I'm not doing things anymore that scare me. I'm not growing to the next level. There are absolutely chapters of your life where you don't need to be growing. You don't need to be growing all the time. And that's also a mistake we make and why we get burnt out because we don't accept that there are chapters where you just chill the fuck out. Like you're going through some personal stuff, like work growth is not your priority. You just need to survive. But In most cases, I don't want to get so comfortable that I'm not nervous or I'm not invested in doing a good job. So a small amount of self-doubt, a small amount of humility and and concern to to doing your best job and bringing your best self is healthy. But the rest of it, you can feel it, you can acknowledge it, but push through it. You've got to do the thing anyway and give yourself a chance. And it's the same with um, another quote I love is, if you don't ask, it's a no. It's already a no. You've given yourself a no. But if you ask, even if you're scared, even if there's a 50% chance it will go badly and you'll get a no, there's a 50% chance that it will go well. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I, I love how you talk about it. It's so refreshing. And I'm it so really has... today. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, are you kidding? I love it. This is like the book that I love just coming to life <laughs> in front of me. I'm I more just... eloquent in the book. Today I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with my brain. <laughs> no, are you kidding? This is perfect. And I just, yeah, it's it, you've given me a different outlook to all of those things, comparison, imposter syndrome, to not fear it. Like the minute it comes up, I'm actually, I am beginning to like embrace it a little bit and allow it to give me some power, Mm. I guess. And so thank you. It's really empowering. And speaking of power in the book, you talk about the power pose. So when we are feeling like we are losing our power and that we're a bit powerless because of imposter syndrome or comparison, what do we do? (laughs) (laughs) A fun one. Um, Julie Stavania from Star Runner, the original co-founder who became a very good friend, was one of the first uh, podcast guests ever, told me, I think it was my first first big speaking gig ever where the imposter syndrome and self-doubt were in overdrive. I was speaking with people I never thought I'd even meet. Someone took a huge risk and gave me a microphone and we were side stage and she said, there's an amazing TED talk by Amy Cuddy that talks about the power pose and the fact that when we're feeling nervous, we often shrink our shoulders. We like our posture is really bad. We shrink to try and not take up space because we're feeling nervous and we diminish ourselves. And then that psychologically reaffirms that you're not taking up space and you're small and like you don't have... You can't even project your voice when your posture's like that. Like mm-hmm. everything becomes small. Um, whereas psychologically, if you put your shoulders back like Wonder Woman, if you have your feet, like don't put them together or cross them, stand with your feet sort of hip width or shoulder width apart and take up space and like put your arms up like this and take up more or put your hands on your um, hips, you're physically taking up more space that psychologically mm-hmm. that will give you more confidence because you are taking up space. You're physically 
deserving the room that you're in. And I think there's a little bit of controversy about the actual science and psychology behind the power pose. And there's been like TED talks that have come out against Amy Cuddy's original TED talk and back and forth. Oh, guys, let the girl dream. Let a girl dream. (laughs) Also, I think even if there is not necessarily actual science in that the neurons in your body think, oh, I'm in a Wonder Woman pose, I'm obviously feeling more confident. It's just the trigger. It's just the reminder of, okay, stand up tall, project your voice, look confident, even if you don't feel confident. Like how can those behaviors not at least help you fake it a little bit more? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so like starts tricking your mind into believing that you are good enough and that you are powerful. Yeah, and even if you don't feel it, you'll look it, which means everyone else will behave towards you as if you are, which will then reaffirm to you that maybe I am. And I think that everything in life is just hacking your own behaviors and brain Mm. to increase the likelihood of doing what you want to do and decrease the likelihood of doing things you don't want your brain to do. And that's all that matters. Whereas we spend so much time researching the best diet, researching the best exercise, researching the best techniques and blah, 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 and not paying attention to any data that we have Mm. real time, proper data about what works for you. Like yeah. some people, the power pose is like the biggest shit ever that will never work because they hate standing that way. They're uncomfortable. Like mm. for some people, that's just not going to work. They don't take physical cues. They take visual or audio cues. Like mm. some people need to whisper things to themselves. Some people like Lisa Messenger listens to house music before she goes on stage. That would distract me. So I love house music, but that would make me party Sarah. I would forget yeah. all of the things <laughs> I wanted to say. And I think we just need to figure out What hacks work for your brain and your defaults and your strengths and your weaknesses? Where are the places that your brain goes? What stops your brain doing that? Mm -hmm. And that means it's going to be different for all of us. Like there's some weird shit that I do that helps me that I'm like, I'm not even going to tell anyone else about that because that is not going to work for anyone else. But it's alarming how little time people spend on researching themselves and then yeah. working out what works. They just copy, oh, well, she did that diet, so that's going to work for me. Why? Your bodies are completely different. Yeah, take time to figure out you. And on kind of the other end of what we've been talking about, so we have been talking about kind of feeling powerless, but what about when we do the power pose and we are feeling really powerful and we are moving ahead with our blinkers on in our own lane, we're feeling incredible, and then we kind of get that feeling of dimming ourselves down to make others comfortable. And I want to read out a little passage from Seize the Yay. I don't mean to be dramatic, but I think it's one of the best things I've ever read. <laughs> but just, okay, everyone listen. I bet all my listeners right now, are, you're going to agree with me. Okay, so it says, Even if someone isn't necessarily a hater but simply isn't supportive of what you are doing, you should never let this dull your sparkle simply because it's shining in their eyes. Often people withhold support because you are defying the limits of what they believe is possible, but it's not on you to drop back to their level to bring them comfort. I just recorded you doing that because it was so beautiful. (laughs) That. Honestly, I could not relate to that quote more. I've really found that in the last couple of years when I have finally found my happiness and I have been feeling really fulfilled, that I'm really careful with who I share that with. But that makes me sad in itself because I should want to share it with all the people that I know. 
talk us through this beautiful passage. Yeah, I think it's, it is really hard when you've had a big revelation and a big life change and a way to change the way that you approach scary, hard things in life. And then that starts to reap a lot of benefits for you because people who are not in that place, even if they, like I said, like don't want to detract from your happiness, even if they're not, not happy for you, I think sometimes when it's still foreign to them or you move into a world that they don't understand anymore and not everyone can come along with you on that journey. And that means your friendship groups change a lot. Like obviously there are, there will always be a very small minority of people who are actively not agreeing with what you're doing and you're not going to be mm-hmm. for everyone. But then there's just a whole bunch of people who you grow out of or grow sideways from. And that's really, really hard because you do want everyone who loves you to be happy for you. But you've also got to remember everyone has their own self-doubt, their own comparison, their own stuff going on in their own brain. And our lives are so busy and overflowing that like it can be really hard to adjust to the fact that not everyone is kind of coming along with you. Yeah. Um, But I think the quote that I think I use in that uh, or somewhere around that chapter in about the people piece is people will be in your life for a reason, a season or a lifetime. And you will have friends that are there for you the whole way through for every version and chapter of who you are. Then Mm. you'll have people who are in your life for a reason that's time specific or in your life for a season when your lives match and when your lives are compatible. And sometimes when you take away the common ground, like a lot of my corporate friends, I I'm not not friends with them anymore, but our lives just yeah. don't fit together. We're on such different schedules. Our priorities are so different. We literally don't have minutes where we're mm. free at the same time. Our common ground was sharing a career and a, and a, a day-to-day. And without that, the common ground is sort of not as strong. And I think yeah. you often lament that, like, everyone's not supporting me. Everyone's not, like, happy for me. It's not often the case. It's just that you're in a different world now and that, you know, in a different chapter, you can honor the friendship you had and then and then be sad that, you know, it doesn't necessarily continue as strongly into the next chapter. But that's sort of the price of changing who you are as well, that the people yeah. around you will change. And I think it's 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 felt at times sometimes not cold, but it's felt weird to let go of relationships that don't fit your new life. Mm. Um and it has, it's hard sometimes because then you don't want to feel like you're the person who's like, oh, I'm all good and happy and I'm, I'm in this happy place and, like, you just don't pretend that anymore. Yes. But literally you have exactly. a certain amount of minutes in your day and, like, if people yeah. can't, can't be happy for you and can't enjoy it, there's also, like, a huge amount of resentment that sometimes people have when you are really happy if they're not really happy and they haven't gotten there yet and it's really confronting for them. Like, that's also very natural in human behavior. Yeah. So, there's a lot going on around any kind of big change in your life. And I think patience and compassion for yourself and for everyone else is really important. Yeah, I think, yeah, compassion definitely. And like what is your advice, say, if someone is feeling really good and really amazing and they do start to quiet themselves down, whether it is with family or colleagues or even strangers, What's your advice when we have that feeling of I need to be, like I used to get it even in social situations. Like I remember I'd come home and I'd think I was too loud. Like I laughed too much. I was too much. My energy's too much. And like I think back and I'm like, oh, little Cleo, you're fine. But, you know, so what's your advice when people are feeling like that? It's such a hard one because it is so common for you to 
when you know that someone is not having a good time, you don't want to like shove it in their face that you're so yes. happy and you're having the best. No. Time. So I think there's a, I think there is definitely a reasonable amount of curating what you talk about and how you talk about it to match mm-hmm. the situation that people are in in your life around you. Yeah. But if you are constantly finding that you are dulling your sparkle and really curtailing or restricting the parts of you that are the most special and that are who you are, that's probably not a relationship that is conducive to like where you want to be because mm. it's hard. We're wearing a lot of masks all the time, but to be constantly like shrinking to make other people comfortable, maybe they're not your people. And that's, again, really, really hard to confront. It's really, really difficult, particularly if you didn't expect it from that person or you still have a little Mm. love for them and there's not anything overt. It's just this constant feeling of having to be someone else. Like we spend so much time working on ourselves. It's too hard to also be wearing different masks and being a different person for for other people else around you. So yeah, And I guess I should mention too that there might be some listeners going, yeah, but, I can't get away from these people who are making me, you know, feel a certain way. Like they might be colleagues that they work with every single day or parents or, you know, I don't know, siblings. So when you can't kind of love and leave that relationship, any advice around that? And then we're going to get to our last section of pulling hard. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really, really difficult situation. And that is one of those times where giving people advice, like never let anyone dull your sparkle is like, it's my mum. Like I can't yeah. copy her <laughs> Yeah. So that's not helpful. And there are really times in life where that kind of advice is not useful and is not practical. Mm. Um, and I think the best advice in situations like that is, you know, there have been a lot of people I know who have moved into business and have not even told their family until it's successful because they can't wow. do the pitch because there's enormous family pressures. There's a lot of, you know, parents or family members who grew up in very different times, who have very different values. Our generation is in a weird time. The world is changing very quickly. Things are very different and mm. no other generation is used to that and what that means. Um, and I think it's, 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 superficial to say never be smaller or never curtail parts of yourself to hide from other people because there are situations where you do sometimes have to take a risk and you do sometimes have to hide what you're doing like I didn't tell anyone at my law firm for like Mm. at least a year yeah because I couldn't I was still working there like and I didn't want the worlds to collide I liked yeah they were separate so that wasn't really dulling my sparkle that was just making a judgment based on how I felt and I think there are many people who have had to pitch their life change to their parents or family after there are some positive data and stats to yeah. sort of pitch with and I think that's okay I think we all have different lives and we all have different situations and I think the more dangerous situation is when you're in a voluntary friendship that you can control and you are still yes. constantly making compromises to be someone who is making themselves or their successes smaller because you don't feel celebrated if you're in a situation like I often say you know you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with that does mm-hmm. not include your secretary or your train driver because you're with them you can't choose that like that's not what we mean we don't mean those people we mean the voluntary time that you spend when you're actively choosing and controlling that that's the five people that we're talking about so I think within reason don't let yes I love that (laughs) but I think that's what your like the little passage I read out it embodies all of that like it is just it's just the perfect little passage (laughs) I just love it okay so with my guest episodes I am either going to start or end or whenever 
pull a card from my deck. Today we're using the guided affirmation cards and I'm just going to trust that the card is either going to come out for you or for me or even the collective message and we're just going to spend the last few minutes kind of chatting about what that message might mean to us. All right, let's see what comes out. We've got to trust the process here. All right. (laughs) This is so... I knew a card was going to come out that like just aligned to our episode perfectly. So we got the growth card. (laughs) It says each day brings new opportunities to grow into the person I want to be. I am planting seeds for my future. So maybe this is like a message for those listeners who don't feel like the seeds that they are planting are blooming yet, but like your story, Sarah, is so inspiring to see that the accidental landing in law also led to you accidentally finding matcha like how what do you feel what do you feel around this topic of growth (laughs) I feel like that's the that's the card for what we're talking about and I'm never surprised anymore there's magic in these decks I swear so much so much and I I love that seed um reference there because I think there's a quote in you know the little flip books that I have yes Um, Love them. ones. There's also one that's um, I can't even remember it, but it's something about like the the seed you plant today is the fruit you eat tomorrow, or something like that. But it's oh the yeah, idea, yeah. It's something about the idea that like you don't know often what you're planting at the time. Like I spent, I would say, 15 years of the journey that I can remember as a autonomous decision making adult planting seeds in all different places and not knowing where they were going to be relevant. Like yeah. you just got to keep planting. Like you don't know where they're going to be relevant. I started going to um, Business Chicks, League of Extraordinary Women, all of those things when I was at uni. Like I wasn't even a lawyer yet. I hadn't even entered the workforce and I still was like, maybe one day I want to be in business or I, at least I want to be around people who are in business or maybe I want to be the lawyer for those people or I don't even know. But like I just, I would voluntarily go and spend money on buying tickets and time on going to these things because I was like, that's a seed. Don't know where it's going to end up. Years later, when I'm like emceeing for business chicks or something, I get to tell the story of the fact that this seed was planted like a bajillion years ago before I even knew what fruit would come out. But that's the point. Like growth is a question mark. Yes. Isn't it isn't at the same time. That is so, this just, this conversation is making me so excited. And I guess too, like when you were first going to these business chicks events, for example, yeah, sure. It would have been a fun day, whatever, but it wasn't necessarily that pivotal moment that changed everything. Like for me, when I had the idea for pass around a smile, sure. It was a cool idea. I wasn't necessarily overly excited about it. It wasn't what I wanted at the time but now I have arrived, you know, well, we've talked about how you think you arrive at happiness. Arriving always, it's about the journey, the process. (laughs) But yeah, wow. I think we can, we can definitely end on that. That was such a beautiful card to round off our conversation. It is crazy how much card decks never surprise me. Like, oh my God, literally, wild. I will pull the same cards over and over and over again until I listen or until I do that thing or learn that lesson, like mm-hmm. as no matter how hard I shuffle. It's crazy. 
Also, Sarah, tell us where we can find you, where we can buy your book, more importantly, because I really talked it up. (laughs) You are so lovely. It's all linked from Spoonful of Sarah on Instagram. I feel like I live in a lot of different places, but that's probably the easiest place to go because everything else is linked from there. Um, But the book and the podcast are called Seize the Yay, so you can also look at those. Um, But I live on the internet, so you'll probably find me somewhere. (laughs) Amazing. And I'll put all of that in the show notes as well. And, guys, just because we talked a lot about the book today, we hardly scratched the surface. So get the book. (laughs) You'll love it. Thank you so much for coming on as my first guest today, Sarah. It was so amazing having you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And you did the most amazing job. I can't wait to see how this show grows. It's been amazing. It's been a joy. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah.